0: You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Romans has been known as the Fort Knox of Bible doctrine. And man, as I was just studying inductively this week, verse by verse and word by word and just pulling apart the verses and looking at the words, um, and I found that by verse 5, you know, I was exhausted with just all the theology that's just so deep in this book already, it's like eating a, a steak that's like this thick and just trying to trying to uh, you know just fully digest it all. Um, but by God's grace, today we'll make it through verse seventeen, focusing specifically on verses sixteen and seventeen. But uh, you know, as we go through the book of Romans, we're going to pick out uh, just fi- uh, foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. It's just a book just chock full of deep truths about God. Uh just well-known Bible uh, preacher, Donald Barnhouse, said that if there was one book that I could have in the Bible, it'd be Romans. Uh, 70% of teachers said the same thing. If we could just have one book, whether we were going through a time of persecution or stuck on a desert island or whatever, then I, I would take Romans Uh, All ancient literature has coined the term all roads lead to Rome and we've heard that before Um, and and Paul you know as he had such a desire to get to Rome knew that man if if we could just transform the uh, Rome with the gospel revival would just trickle out from all those roads that lead to Rome and as I was in Corvallis yesterday for a wedding a friend of mine some of you know him Tom Cox he was there and I said, "Yeah, excited tomorrow. I'm starting the book of Romans." And he said, "Whoa, bro, get ready for revival in your church." And I was like, "Amen, man." And uh, it's just it's just known that man, as, as people go through the book of Romans, revival takes place. And so, would you commit with me to praying for our church as we go through this book that revival would take place, that life would be brought. Uh, to these mortal bodies, you know, uh, that we would just become more spiritually alive. God revive us as we go through Romans. Uh, One of our founding fathers of the faith, John Chrysostom, was a bishop of Constantinople back in the early 300s. And he was known to be an incredibly powerful orator. In fact, his last name is actually a nickname. Chrysostom means golden tongue. And uh, his congregation nicknamed him that. When he would speak, the audience would literally break out in applause as he preached. And so one Sunday he did a message trying to tame the body and teach them not to applaud while he's teaching. And they ended up applauding during that sermon. Um, But just an incredible preacher through the word. But it was said that Chrysostom would Uh, Read the book of Romans all the way through every week for 18 years Just what an example that is to us who can hardly crack open the Bible at all during the week to get into the word at all And to just be encouraged by those men that that uh, just have have made a good standard to follow Um, To spend time in the word I encourage you all to be spending time in the book of Romans to read ahead every week And to be prayerful over it, that the Lord would teach you and change you, as well as teach, change, and save those that would come on Sunday mornings uh, for however long we'll be here. Um, One of the other founding fathers that we know of is uh, St. Augustine uh, he's known as St. Augustine. We might just call him Augustine, but he was a young man and early on in his faith, who was weighed down with sin, specifically, specifically sexual immorality, uh, involved in an immoral relationship, empty and broken. One day he went to a park. He happened to have a new Testament on him. And as he sat under a tree with that Bible, uh, some kids ran around him singing a popular children's song that said, pick it up and read it through, pick it up and read it through. And so he looked down, saw the Bible, flipped it open to Romans, picked it up, read it through. And before he was done reading through Romans, uh, he'd been saved by Jesus and his life had been transformed uh, in a a sitting there of the book of Romans. Most of us know Martin Luther. He was a popular Catholic monk and Bible teacher at kind of a Bible college and, uh, over in Germany, and Luther just really struggled with Catholicism as he'd taken vows of celibacy, vows of poverty, and he just was miserable with the thought of, how could God let sinners into heaven without spoiling heaven? And so he really tried to purge himself of sin through his works and through his deeds. Uh, he would, It was known that he would spend nights in his chambers with a whip and he would whip himself across his back trying to beat his sin out of himself. On a trip to Rome, hoping to be absolved of sins by the Pope, he got to the Vatican where there's these famous uh, marble stairs, hundreds of stairs that um, Constantine historically has brought over from Jerusalem. They used to be Pontius Pilate's stairs, the stairs that Jesus stood on bloody and beaten uh, while giving his defense. And the Catholics to this day, you can look it up online, will kiss every step uh, on their way up to basically kiss the Pope's feet. And uh, it was there as Martin Luther was going up the steps, you know, trying to be absolved of his sin, trying to find some sort of forgiveness and, and, and uh, that, that the Lord brought to remembrance Romans chapter seven, one verse 17, where Habakkuk is quoted, where it says that the just shall live by faith. was there that Martin Luther heard the Lord say to him, Martin, the just, the righteous shall live by faith. And so he stood up, he didn't even finish his way up the stairs. He stood up and he went back home and on the way he wrote the 95 thesis, uh, which were 95 points that he had of doctrinal errancy against the Catholic church. And he went and he pinned that thesis up on the Wittenberg uh, cathedral door and um, basically began the Protestant reformation, a call For the church to come back to the scriptures and to come back to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. To come back to that message that the just, if you want to be right before God, you must live by faith. And as he was there, he considered himself to have been reborn and to have passed through heaven's doors into paradise, he said. It was there that Luther discovered or rather was discovered by the gospel. And my prayer is today that you here today will discover the gospel or that the gospel would discover you. Luther said that every pastor should drum the book of Romans into the congregation's head. And he believed that every Christian should know it word for word by heart as it will serve as the daily bread for their souls. You might remember as we started the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit, I felt, spoke to me and said, Rory, I want you to fast every Thursday as you go through the book of Acts, that the book of Acts might happen in this town. And now we're done with the book of Acts, and I felt the Lord say, Hey, I want you to memorize the book of Romans every chapter as you go through it um, to plant the word deep within your heart. And so it's my call to you to join me in that, just that, you know, as we're going through the chapters, by the time we're done with chapter ones, be done memorizing chapter one. And there's some really great uh, memory techniques and all of that that are out there. You can Google it, scripture memory ideas, or I can give you my method and um, we could do that together. At the very least, it'd be awesome to memorize uh, certain verses from the chapter together as we go through the word. Today, we'll be memorizing chapter uh, verses 16 and 17. Uh, this of of chapter one but uh, you know that we might know the book word for word by heart if you were to title the book of Romans one might just simply call the book the book of grace the book of grace may we be introduced to grace this week and may we live with her for the rest of our lives May we own grace. May grace never become a redundant word to us, but may we become champions of grace as we work through this book. Just go ahead and read through the first 15 verses of the the chapter where it says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with the resurrection by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we've received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Christ Jesus. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God's my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I, may be incur- that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, Both to wise and to unwise. So, as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Excuse me. So, Paul began just saying, Man, I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm a bond servant of God. We talked about what that word bond servant means last week at family camp, it's the Greek word doulos. And it means a willing slave. You get it from Deuteronomy 15 and Exodus 21 verse 2, where a a servant or a slave would serve his master for a certain period of time, approximately seven years. And when that time came up, he was allowed to go free or he could choose to stay and work for his master because he loved his master so much. But if he chose that, it would have to be for the rest of his life. And thus the doulos was born, as the doulos would come to the doorpost of his master's house, and he would take his ear and put it up against the doorpost, and the master would drive an awl through the earlobe, and that awl would continually serve to be a reminder of that commitment to be a bond servant of his master. And Paul said, Man, it was that day on the road to Damascus that I went to the doorpost of Jesus' house, and he put that awl in my heart. And forever I'll be his servant. I don't have to have to serve, but I want to serve. I want to be all for you, Lord. He says he's called to be an apostle, a delegate, an ambassador, a commissioner of Jesus Christ. Just like today, many of you would be called to go certain places, to be sent out as missionaries, as ambassadors, as ministers of the gospel. Paul was separated to the gospel. He was set off and exclusively for the gospel all of him was all for the gospel. You see in the verses 2 and 3 and 4 that, that it was all. The gospel was manifested in the Old Testament. It was prophesied of what the Lord would do to redeem humanity. And in verse 4, you see that the resurrection, the culmination of it all proves that he is the Messiah. We see in verse 7 that who he wrote to was a group of people who were loved. The Romans. Paul wrote from Corinthians before he'd ever visited the church. And yet he wrote a letter to them saying, man, I love you guys. You are beloved. And not only beloved by Paul, but beloved by the Lord. Interesting, as you come to this place today, have you ever heard that you are loved? That you are loved. Can you hear that enough? <laughs> that you're the beloved of God, that there's nothing that you can do that would cause him to love you more. And there's no way that you could fail that would cause him to love you less. He loves you 100% and he'll always love you 100%. Do you know that he's demonstrated his love for you? He doesn't just offer up lip lip service, you know, Like that person you dated in high school. Oh, I love you. Oh, I love you too. Yeah, we're going to get married someday. Yeah, we're probably not, you know. um, Sorry, I'm just going back in memory lane a little bit, okay. Um, You know, just offering up lift service, but no demonstration. Jesus came and demonstrated his love. Romans 5, 8 tells us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. That's a demonstration. That's a proof of his love for you. You're loved today. We're called to be saints. The Romans were called to be saints. Today, in this day and age, we have a skewed view of what a saint is. I stumbled by calling Augustine a saint when really everybody's a saint if they're in Christ, if they've been washed of their sins, if they're found in Christ Jesus by grace through faith. You're a saint. Stories told of a little boy who was raised in a church with stained glass windows. And as time went by, he would constantly find himself over examining the stained glass and touching the seams and the different colors of glass and looking at the apostles who just seemed to shine with brightness. And one day in his Sunday school class, his teacher asked him, you know, does anybody know what a saint is? And he raised his hand and he said, a saint is somebody who the light shines through No doubt thinking of the stained glass saints, but what truth there is to that? If you're somebody that the light of Jesus Christ shines through because he's in you, you're a saint, you know, to use the term that I think John Corson termed, you know, you're either a saint or you're an ain't. Okay. You're either saved and set apart from the world You're washed in the blood of Jesus. You're clothed in garments of white righteousness. Your life is now to glorify him and to be used by him and to further his name and his kingdom. You're a saint or you're an ain't. You're an enemy of God. You're in stiff necked rebellion against him and against his word and against his statutes. And you're an enemy of his, as the book of Romans will tell us, at war with him, at enmity against him there's no middle ground. You're all the way saint, washed in the blood of Jesus and seen as a saint by him, or you're an ain't, you're an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The introduction that is so commonly found in every one of Paul's epistles, you all probably know it, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These terms are, or these two words, grace and peace, are always coupled together by the Apostle Paul. And if you've gone to a Calvary Chapel very long, you've heard the introduction given before that you'll never know true peace until you know grace. Grace and peace, they go together. Grace in that it's never been your works that have saved you and it never will be. That in grace, we're told to quit running on the Christian treadmill, attempting to work for God's a favor, attempting to appease God. It's grace that tells us that it's not our works, but that it's what Jesus has worked for us. It's all about him. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense we get all of the riches at God. It costs us nothing. It costs Jesus everything. And when we get that, and when we receive that, and when we rest in that, we'll finally have peace. We'll finally have rest. So often we're so condemned feeling that we haven't done enough for God. And the only way we can kind of Get ourselves out of that guilt trip is by reading a few chapters of the scripture. Now I'm good. I'm feeling better about myself. The guilt has gone away. Or serving somewhere in the church or making it to church a couple times a week. Now I'm feeling better because I've done this. God must be with, pleased with me. My friends, you've fallen from grace. You've fallen from grace. It's about what He has done and the life He lived. And you rest completely in that. Get your eyes off of yourself and get your eyes on him moment by moment. Lift your gaze skyward. In verses 8 through 15, we just see his desire to visit Rome. Verse 8 tells us that, man, your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. This was before Paul had even met them. What an incredible witness. The whole world had heard of of their faith in Christ. And Paul said, man, I just want you to know, I've been wanting to get up there. God's my witness that I've been wanting to get up there. I've been wanting to be a faithful apostle and go up and and equip you and give you gifts and impart to you gifts. But I want you to know, I make mention of you without ceasing, I'm always praying for you. I'm always praying for you. When was the last time you, without ceasing, prayed for people you've never even met? You know, Making mention of, of the saints out there. Praying for those, as Hebrew tells us, that are chained for the gospel as if you've been chained for, uh, alongside with them. Remembering the brothers and sisters out there. Paul was a guy that was just constantly, consistently praying, and may we learn from that. I was in Corvallis getting ready for this wedding, and my friends, and I was in my sister's shower. Don't worry, the story pretty much ends there. But um, look up off of the shell of the shower, you know, and up there, there's this bulletin board, and on that bulletin board are pinned you know, uh, a picture of the Corvallis School of Ministry group and missionaries from the church sent out of Corvallis. There's one of the uh, Calvary Chapel of Crook County brochures, folded in half, pinned up on the bulletin board, you know, um, just, just, Uh, the, uh, the little announcement for the abortion signing is up there pinned to the bulletin board. And I was just so blessed that my sister Heather is a woman of unceasing prayer that man, she's in the shower. She's got something to remind her to be praying. And I was just so stirred by that. Want to just like print off your guys' Facebook pictures, and just like pin them around my house, you know, and just do what I can to just, just have you guys ever before me that I can just always be praying for you and the things that are going on man, may the Lord just work that out in us. We would just be just the Lord. You're the witness, Lord. We're men and women of prayer for each other and for the lost around us. But Paul was, Paul was leading by example in that he wanted to make it to, to be with them. And we see, you know, we just finished the book of Acts. We know that he finally made it to Rome as a Roman prisoner, uh, in chains under house arrest, Uh, eventually to be beheaded there in Rome, but he did finally make it to the church. And we remember as he was walking on the Aegean way on his way to Rome that the saints from Rome met him and greeted him. And uh, no doubt he just thought they got my letter. They got my letter and they remember me and they love me and here they are. And they came and they greeted him. They'd walked some 150 miles to meet with Paul and to escort him as a prisoner back to Rome. And verse 11 says, you know, he longed to see him that he could give them a spiritual gift that they could be established or, you know, that that they could be settled securely in the faith. And then he goes on to say that I may be encouraged with you by the mutual faith, both of me. You see in verse 12 that the Christian faith, it's reciprocal. It goes and it comes. It makes the circle he wants to give the gifts of the spirit that they might give the gifts of the spirit for the edification of the body. First Corinthians four says, um, that, that, that the church would grow and be edified and that it would excel. That every time we use a spiritual gift, it would be for edification of the body of Christ. You notice he uses the word mutual faith there as the ESV puts it. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And so often within the American church today, you know, people come to church thinking that whoever's on paid on staff or whoever's technically you know, an elder or whatever, those are the ones that encourage and pour themselves out and, and that's their job. When actually as the body of Christ, we all do our share in this mutual encouragement to one another. I encourage you. You encourage me. We encourage each other. If the church was a barbecue and each believer was a single coal, then the coal should be put together so that the heat can be fostered and stirred and shared. But we all know what happens when a coal begins to be segregated or set apart or isolates itself. We've all witnessed it. It loses its glow, loses its heat, and eventually it fizzles out and died. It's good for nothing. What a warning to us to, to keep that mutualness of the faith, to stay together, to be common together. Paul said that I want you to be aware, I plan to come to you in verse 13 and in verses 14 through uh, 16, there's these three "I am" statements in verse 14. He says, I'm a debtor to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise and the unwise. No doubt he's a debtor because he knows how much he's been forgiven. And so he needs to get out there and tell the others that they can be forgiven as well. I'm a debtor. In verse 15, he says, I am ready. As much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel. And actually, perhaps your translation says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. When was the last time you were eager for something? I mean, what does it look like for someone to be eager? I'll tell you my eager. It's coming, you know. I was eager for family camp last week. It's it's coming, you know. Jerry's going to meet us at the lake with his boat. My in-laws are coming up. They're going to meet us. We're going to get to go and we're going to get to serve the body. We're going to be on the lake. Are they coming? I'm looking down the road. Are they they coming? They're almost here. You know, a couple days beforehand, I'm getting the Yukon all packed up with well, we got canopies, we got sixteen crates of bottled water. You know, got just the first aid kit. Oh my gosh, it's going to be great. It's going to be great nine o'clock I show up at the lake and Saturday morning <sighs> noon goes by <laughs> you know eager nobody came in case you're wondering nobody came to like three o'clock but it was awesome it was great Sunday morning just like all you guys it was so cool I was so eager to just be with you and to spend time with you and to just sit in the grass and just talk and pray and encourage and you know, fall off a wakeboard and all that stuff. Just looking forward to it, eager. When was the last time you've been able to say, I'm eager to preach the gospel? I'm eager to preach it. Have you ever said that? So cool to have the Agents for Christ in town and, and you know, they're, they're just eager to preach the gospel everywhere they go, trying to get people, hey, what are you doing? You want to go to the fair? Can we witness at the fair? You know, to Hearing they went to somebody's house for dinner and just talking about, man, I've never street witnessed or whatever. That's it. We're all going street witnessing together. September, whatever it was, you know, like we're all going together. Get ready. Eager to preach the gospel, looking for every opportunity to go out and to herald the good news. Lord, give us an eagerness to preach the gospel. I'm a debtor, verse 14. I'm ready to preach in verse 15 and verse 16. I'm not ashamed. I'm ready, I'm eager, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Are you ashamed? It's the Greek word, apahis namahi. That's a word to be ashamed of right there. Are you ashamed of the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, the good message? The message of the battlefield where a rider would just be ready to hop on his steed and ride into the village and tell everyone the battle has been won with excitement and with eagerness. Or do you ride with your head held down low, trotting or walking really more in shame than in a heart of eagerness? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Why would anyone be ashamed of the good news? Does it make sense? Even this week, have we been ashamed of the good news? Perhaps we've been asked a direct question about the Christian faith or the nature of Christianity. And immediately we become tongue-tied, we push it to the third person, and, oh, it's not really about you being a sinner, it's just, you know, people aren't good, and, you know, Jesus kind of had to come, but, you know what, and you're watering down the gospel because you're ashamed of it, and you're afraid to speak exactly what it is in all of its truth, and all of its confrontation, and all of its accusation, but in all of its also ability to forgive and to restore. There's a fear of what man will say, there's a fear of a response, therefore there's shame in us. When was the last time that you shared the good news with people? The church has been ashamed for a long time. First Corinthians 1:18 tells us that the message of the cross, it's foolishness to those that are perishing. It's foolishness, it's dumb. Don't open your mouth about that. That's the most foolish thing I've ever heard. But then it goes on to say, but to we who are being saved by it, it's the power of God and his salvation. He goes on to say, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it's foolishness. It's dumb. And if we preach, if Paul preached and the Jews were stumbled by it, and the Greeks thought they were idiots, then the gospel we preach should have some of those same effects nearly every time we open our mouths about it. If you're sharing with a Jew, it should stumble the Jew. If you preached a secular man, they should think it's foolishness. As you continue to reason, you you continue to reason with them it's not foolishness. It's logical, it's reasonable, but we should be hearing those words, "I've never heard such foolish things in my whole entire life." And then we explain and we expound, and we show how it's the wisest thing that the world has ever seen. But he says, "I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed." He's basically saying the opposite of that or the opposite of shame. Rather, he says, I glory in the gospel. I'm thrilled with the gospel. Not only am I not afraid to talk about it, I want to talk about it. I want to open my mouth about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's been said that no one will ever glory in the gospel unless they are first converted by the gospel. Paul in Acts chapter nine was Saul at the time on the road to Damascus. The big bright light came down. The Lord came and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul said, who are you, Lord? Called him his Lord. He was converted that day on the road to Damascus. He became Paul. He went to Damascus, was prayed for by Ananias And in that same chapter, verse 20 of Acts 9, it says, immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues. This guy was saved and went to preaching immediately. And it says that as he preached that Jesus is the son of God, people heard him and were amazed and said, isn't this the guy that was persecuting Christians and dragging women and men out to be killed or to be put in prison? In fact, that's why he came to Damascus And it says, Saul increased all the more in strength. He confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. How did he prove that Jesus was the Christ? But by showing his transformed life. I was on the road to this town when Jesus appeared to me. I was going to kill Christians. I was going to imprison you guys. And Jesus appeared to me, resurrected and in glory. And now I'm a Christian. Actually an apostle even. That's better proof then whipping out Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict or Lee Strobel's case for Christ or case for faith or anything like that is that changed life. No one can argue with it. It's the power of God unto salvation. The power of God, it's been said, is at its apex with the Son of God bruised, beaten, bleeding, and dying on a cross. From the world's perspective, it's an absolute failure. From heaven's perspective, it's a display of power. And so as we take communion and we remember the broken body of our Lord Jesus and the blood that he shed, we're saying out, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. It's the power of God. It's the power of God over and over and over again. That's what we declare through communion. The power of God, the Greek word is dunamis, and it speaks of miraculous power and might. It even can speak of a violent power. And the gospel goes out and just explodes and destroys the works of darkness and a hard heart. But notice there in verse 16 that it's the gospel that's the power. It's the message itself that is the power. How awesome is that? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't depend upon you at all. You're just a vessel. You're just a conduit. The Lord's just using you. It doesn't matter how much education you have in Christianity. Christianity. Just know the simplicity of the gospel. You read it in such a simple form. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is what I delivered to you, that Christ came into the world. He was crucified and he rose from the dead. That is power. It's the power of God and his salvation. It saves you, is what salvation speaks of. It saves you from hell. It saves you from the wrath of God. It saves you from the consequence of your sin. There was a bishop traveling on a london train going to conduct a religious ceremony and he was confronted with a little salvation army girl traveling in the same compartment as he she assumed that he was just so religious that he didn't have any clue what the gospel was so she asked him she said excuse me bishop is you saved and he said young lady do you mean have i been saved am i being saved and will i be saved He explained to her the nature of salvation, that in Christ, I've been saved from my sins and that one day in heaven, I will be saved from the very presence of sin in my life. And that today, as I'm on my earthly pilgrimage, I walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. As I walk in that power, I'm being saved from sin. It's all about what the Holy Spirit is doing in me. As Alistair Begg said, neither you or I can have any sound assurance of salvation except that it's based upon a present conscious communion with Jesus Christ. Not yesterday's news, not a date scribbled in the flyleaf of my Bible, but today with Jesus, not success, not necessarily a successful day with Jesus, but today with Jesus every day sweeter with our Lord Jesus. Today, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Tomorrow, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Today, do you love Jesus? Are you in love with Christ? There's salvation for you. We throw the word gospel around. And if Christians were given an opportunity to write down on a piece of paper, what is the gospel so many would miss the nail completely. In this passage, we see that it's the source, uh, or the source of the gospel is that it's from God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's out of God. It wasn't a human invention or some divine revelation that some guy thought up, but it starts with God. Galatians 1.11 tells us that. I made known to you, brethren, the good news which was preached by me it wasn't according to man i didn't receive it from man nor was i taught it but it came through the revelation of jesus christ the gospel has source and that source is from god you guys all know john three sixteen, where it culminates it he gave his only son it came from him he gave the substance of the gospel is found there and that It's for everyone who believes or has faith. Faith, Hebrews 11 tells us, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. As you have faith in Jesus, the gospel substance is seen. The thief on the cross had no righteousness to give. He hung there on the cross and while he was there, he was mocking Jesus Within that same time frame, he came to his senses, realizing that that guy's being crucified for something he's never done, where we're being crucified for our sin, for our thievery. And so he cried out to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you go into your kingdom. That was an act of faith. That was an act of substance of the gospel. And Jesus looked at him and said, assuredly, I say to you, get off that cross. Give me 10 Hail Marys, you know, go serve at the local soup kitchen, become an altar boy buy a bunch of prayer candles, and this and that, and this and that, and then you'll be with me in paradise. No, today, through faith, by grace, you'll be with me in paradise. The substance of the gospel is the faith. John Stott uh, just passed away two weeks ago, gave us four verbs relating to Uh, this whole gospel that gives it essence. And that the first verb would be the word require, require the gospel, the righteousness of God requires and is required if we're ever going to stand before him. But our righteousness is as filthy rags. Isaiah tells us the gospel requires number two, God achieves this righteousness. There's an achieving that takes place through the atoning death of his son as Jesus shed his blood to pay the ransom price for the sins of mankind. God's perfect judgment was satisfied through the death of his son. So there's a requirement. The righteousness of God requires. The righteousness of God achieves. Reveals god reveals his righteousness in the gospel he makes it known through the telling of the good news there's revelation that takes place we'll see that next week as we look deep into verse 17 and the gospel bestows god bestows the gospel on all who trust in him on all who believe the scope of the gospel how wide how vast who does it reach to verse 16 tells us the good news reaches to all who believe it reaches to all who believe in the midst of hyper calvinism you just got to come back to verses like this that just say hey salvation is to all who believe so believe and you'll be saved you right now believe and be saved Rest in Jesus, trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus, put your faith in Jesus. You'll be saved through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's to all and on all who believe. A couple final points about the gospel. There's no church without the gospel. There's no church without the good news. That though man sinned and separated himself from God, Jesus came and lived a perfect life, became a man, fully God, fully man, laid down his life on the cross, shed his blood, that all who believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life because of what he's done. Because of what he's done. There'd be no church without the gospel. Ephesians 1 tells us that after we heard the gospel of our salvation, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The gospel brings that about the good news. The gospel shows us the foolishness of human wisdom. It challenges human intellect and wisdom and shows that man is foolish. Man is foolish. You go and you share the gospel with somebody and immediately they will bring to the table their own righteousness. And you'll be able to look and dig through their righteousness and show them that that's just a big pile of of nasty garbage. It's foolish that you ever thought that that would be good standing before a holy God. Get that out of my face. Let me present to you Christ's righteousness. That's what you need. It's foolish that the world relies on mother nature or a government to provide for their every need. It's foolish that man have the God of self. It's foolish that man would rest in himself. Man's philosophies fall so short compared to the gospel. Finally, we need to teach the gospel to ourselves every day. I've been to churches and I've known pastors that, that preach the gospel every day, Every Sunday, there's altar calls. There's, you know, it's clear presentation of what the gospel is, what the good news is. And I've heard the people leave that church and say, I'm so frustrated that he always preaches the gospel and he always gives altar calls. I want a sermon for goodness sake. And it's just ridiculous because I'm thinking that pastor is rocking it. Those people need to hear the gospel every single day. I, Rory, Need to hear the gospel every single day because the gospel is not the door to the house. The gospel is the foundation of the house. It's the stick frame of the house. It's the siding of the house. It's the electrical and the insulation and the plumbing and the roof. And it's the house. The gospel is it. And it's awesome. And we want to rejoice and dance and sing when we're reminded since yesterday that, you know what? Yesterday, it wasn't about me. It was about faith in the Lord Jesus and what he's done, how he's lived, how he's died, what he's accomplished, what he's done, that he's alive. It was about that yesterday. And today it's about that too. And tomorrow it's about that too. And it doesn't matter if I've read two chapters in my Bible Or, you know, if I help out on the sound team at the church or if I swept the parking lot or whatever, none of that matters. Yesterday, it was about faith in Jesus Christ and what he did today and tomorrow and forever. That's the gospel. The good news of the battlefield is the battle's been won and you didn't do it. Jesus did it. We need to teach the gospel and preach the gospels to ourselves every day. And if we don't, we fall into the same traps that everyone else does. We so quickly resort to justification by what's going on inside of me and what I'm feeling that day and what's going on outside of me rather than just resting by faith in what he did for us. So we're going to close with that and Ken, you can come on up. And the gospel, the good news, it's for you here today. It's the power of God for you today. Today you are being confronted with the sin in your life. You know what you've done. You know the sexual immorality that's going on in your life, the pornography, the sex outside of marriage of any way, shape, or form. You know the idols that you've put up in front of you that that people, places, things, hobbies, whatever it is, you put those things before the God who created you. You're You're an idol worshiper you've been angry at people and you've hated them in your heart and Jesus says you're a murderer, you're a sinner, you're covetous, you're jealous of other people, you're a sinner. That's a bummer. The good news is Jesus came into the world to save sinners of which I'm the chief. (laughs) So let me tell you today, Receive the good news and let what Jesus did on the cross, and not only what he did on the cross, but what he did when he lived in his perfection, be it put on you. And let all of your sin and all that covetousness and all that hatred and all that anger, all that disobedience to your parents, all that rebellion against authority, all that cheating on your taxes, all of that, whatever it is, you put that over there onto Jesus because. He became sin for you that you could become right in him. Receive that gift and allow him to take your sin upon him and you'll be saved through faith. That's how you do it. It's through faith. I don't have any real burden up here. Like come up here and put this backpack on and march around town 10 times. And then you'll finally know it just receive right now in faith. Like a child would, would believe something, believe it today and you'll be saved. And then go out and tell people about it and let the dynamite, let the power of the gospel save the souls. It's the message that does it. It's the spirit that does it. It's not us. Let's go ahead and just set our things aside and we can stand together and just today afresh. You know, the gospel's not just preached To the non-believer who comes in here today, it's to the, the veteran saint of 35, 40 years in this room today.